0: Peter has been explaining why Christians are supposed to live with the proper fear of the Lord before their eyes. He says, because they have been ransomed, redeemed, bought back with the blood the precious blood of of Christ. And so because of that, Christian, if you're in Christ, you have Jesus's blood on you. Not obviously physically, but spiritually. And because of that, you are called now to live differently. In fact, Peter has said, we are called to be holy as God himself is holy. We're called to be different, unlike the rest of the world. You can kind of glance back at verses 20 and 21. They talk about the foreordained plan of God. That was this, that Christ the Lamb would redeem his people by his precious blood at just the right time. And last week I brought up hammer pants and my family quickly told me that that was a stretch. I think there was a pun intended there, but that was a stretch of an illustration to use for God's perfect timing. I agree, but the, the fact remains God's timing is perfect. And if it's perfect in a sense that our redemption, Christian's redemption was planned before even the foundation of the world, surely God's timing is perfect in my life and his timing is perfect in your life. That was the point hammer pants were supposed to make. I'm sure that didn't stick, but there it is. Peter has been causing our minds to kind of think through certain things. And with the precious blood, it's the cross, right? That's where our mind goes. And he talks about the resurrection and our minds go back to the empty tomb. These are two things that proved that Jesus' work was sufficient for sinners to be made new. The cross and the empty tomb. Guys, because of Christ's death and resurrection, you can die to sin and be raised to new life as well. This is the hope that we have as Christians, and Jesus explains that when a person believes in him, we read this from John, when a person believes in Jesus, they believe in God because Jesus came and did and said the things that God told him to do. So Jesus has been and is still today directing people back to the Father and that's why we get John 14:6 it says he says i am the only way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me jesus says so god was reconciling the world to himself through christ that was kind of the theme of last week before the foundation of the world that was god's good plan god is good and god is sovereign in wisdom and all knowledge and this reminds us moving into our text today this reminds us That all of life is lived before the sovereign sight of God. Every breath that you breathe, every minute that you're awake or asleep, for that matter, God sees. God knows. Back in verse 17, Peter said that God is a father who judges impartially. This causes his children to live with that thought in mind every little bit of my life is lived in front of the face of God, before the sight of God. This concept of accountability, though, in front of an all-knowing, all-seeing God, it kind of disrupts our comfort a little bit, doesn't it? It kind of sends a bit of a shiver down our spines. You mean that God hears every word that I say? You mean he knows What I do, even when I'm by myself and nobody else is around, you mean to tell me that he knows everything? I I do. I do mean to tell you that, but I, I would actually say it goes even deeper than that. It goes deeper than just the words that we say and the things that we do. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that God's judgment isn't just based on those things. It's actually based on the intentions of your heart. Well, now there's really nowhere to run from an impartial judge like God the Father is. It's more than just a physical act or an audible word. God sees and knows the deepest hidden parts of us. And again, that makes us uncomfortable. But we can't escape the truth. In fact, truth is a a major point in Peter's words to us today. So listen for the idea of truth as we read our text 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 through the end of the chapter 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Lord, this is, this is good news. And good in a sense of, like you use that word in creation. Not maybe how we use that word now, just to mean okay. Lord, this is, this is great. This is excellent news. The gospel is the best news we would ever hear. This is the word that was preached to Peter's hearers. And Lord, this is the same word that's preached today because Christ is the fulfillment of it. John 1 tells us that he is the word. And so, Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this word that was captured, written by men under the inspiration of your spirit, that it endures even when our foundations here on earth are crumbling We have a firm foundation of what you have given us. And so we thank you, Lord. We celebrate that, and I pray that it would instruct us today in all the things that we need for our life. In your name we pray. Amen. So Peter talks about obedience to the truth, and he says that it produces something. Notice that. He says that it produces the purification of our souls. He's he's got them a little bit differently worded here, but that's what he's getting at. So let me make a statement that I'm going to guess every one of you parents already knows. And it's this. Obedience is something that must be practiced. Is that a fair thing to say, parents? That obedience in our kids is something that they have to practice? And, of course, obedience in our own hearts as parents is also still something that needs to be practiced? Now I would say it's true that there are some kids who are just kind of, kind of more obedient and listen better from the beginning, maybe than others. But even the most well-behaved and well-natured child wrestles against the rebellion of sin at their core. At some point, in some way or another, Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And so if that's the case, our natural default you guys, is not obedience to the Lord. Our natural default is to veer away from that to worldliness, to sin, and not towards obedience. And so a major part of the responsibility of parents for the child-rearing process is helping our children learn how to do what they ought to do when they ought to do it and why they ought to do it. And this, of course, takes practice. For a while, parents are needed to teach their kids to do what's right, to remind them of it even when it's hard, and to apply godly discipline in order that they would learn it properly. The hope with all of that is that one day our kids will, you know, sooner rather than later, they will do what's right even when mom and dad aren't watching. Because, as we've already said this morning, their life, just as much as the rest of ours, is lived Moment by moment, every breath, every second, it's lived before the face of God. And so as parents, we we train them to obey us so that they will obey God. We teach them to do this because we're not always watching, but God is. Now, this isn't a scare tactic we use as parents. It shouldn't be anyway. We don't scare them into obedience. It's What it is is it's a biblical reality. God is an impartial judge, verse 17 says. And we need to know that obedience to the truth is how we become more and more and more like Jesus. Practicing obedience, I think, is another way of just saying sanctification. Sanctification. This is the process by which we are made more and more like Christ. And Peter has already mentioned the purification through fire. If you glance back at verse 7, chapter 1, the testing of our faith. And now I think Peter kind of molds it into this this like cycle. And not a, a vicious cycle where things are playing into bad cycles, but actually a, a glorious one. The more we practice obedience, what does he say? The more our souls are purified. The more our souls are purified, the more we're going to want to practice obedience. That's that maybe kind of symbiotic relationship that's at work in the life of a believer. Obedience feeds purification, and purification feeds further obedience. These things work together. But notice that it's not just obedience to any old thing. What is it obedience to? Look at verse 22. Obedience to what? The truth. It's obedience to the truth. Truth, according to the culture, is usually very different from truth according to Scripture, though, isn't it? How many of you kids came to VBS last year? Raise your hand, okay? Adults, how many of you were here? So if you had a chance, thank you guys, if you had a chance to sit in, uh, James David is preaching at another church this morning, but he talked with the kids the first night of VBS, and he talked about what truth is. And he had a jar of Skittles. You kids, do you remember this? Remember the jar of Skittles? And he said, hey, take a guess as to how many Skittles are in this jar, and nobody, nobody guessed it. Because it was virtually impossible to guess. But he had this jar. He knew how many Skittles were in the jar. He had the final count. And he explained using this simple thing, something that should be really obvious to all of us. And it's, it's this. The final count of Skittles in the jar doesn't change based on how much I guess is in the jar. If there's a thousand skittles and I guess 500, my answer is incorrect. There is an absolute truth of how many skittles. There's a final count of how many skittles are in the jar, and how many I guess doesn't. It doesn't really matter. The final count of how many skittles are in the jar doesn't change simply because I really want it to be a certain amount. It doesn't change based on what I feel, what I want, even what I thought was in there. Doesn't affect it. The number of skittles in the jar was total. Final. Absolute. It was objective. You could dump out the Skittles and count them. A verifiable truth of how many Skittles were there. Whether I like it or not, that's how many Skittles are in the jar. I I think you know where James went with this and where I'm going with this this morning. The truth that we are to obey is the truth that God has established. Specifically, His Word. And that Word doesn't change based on what I want or based on what I feel. And it certainly doesn't base, isn't based on what the culture says it should. Truth is truth, no matter what we think or feel. It's fixed, it's certain, and it is unchanged by the whims of society. But that's not an, a popular opinion today. Truth can be almost whatever you want it. It does not have to be objective. It is much easier to live the way that we want when truth is whatever we make it to be, isn't it? If objective truth exists, however, it means that we are accountable to it. It means that there is a standard, and if we don't measure up, we're accountable to it. Now, notice what Peter says. Simply hearing the truth is not enough. It's part of the equation, but it's not enough. Think about this. When you were learning to drive, your parents, as you were driving down the road, probably told you, okay, it's 55 mile an hour speed limit in this zone. You you heard it. Maybe as you were driving, you saw the speed limit sign. So now you heard it and saw it, and that's a good thing. Those are starts, but it's a whole nother thing to actually drive 55 mile an hour, right? Those of you who have heavy feet understand what I'm talking about. You could even agree, yeah, that's a right Speed limit for this area because of the corners and the blind spots and all that you can agree with it You can see the sign you can be told it, but if you don't practice it Well, it doesn't mean a whole lot to you It's not absolute in your own practice and mind then so there's a deeper step than just hearing the truth Even than agreeing with the truth We're called to obey the truth and to practice obeying the truth Again, I think Peter is referencing the process of sanctification here. And even in that, born-again, genuine believers don't always get it right. I think Paul really helps us here in Romans chapter 7 when he explains that kind of battle that's happening. He says, you know, I know what I ought to do, and I don't do those things. I know what I shouldn't do, and that's the stuff that I usually end up doing. We can identify with that, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, well, that's the, if that's the case, forget it. Why even try? He says, no, I'm confident, he says, that I will be delivered from this body of death by Jesus and that there is no condemnation for, the, for those who are in him. That's the end of chapter 7 of Romans, the beginning of chapter 8. And so out of love for our Redeemer who has ransomed us with his precious blood, We seek to live as he lived in the days that we have. Now, if you're unsure what it might look like for a Christian to obey the truth today, flip over to 1 Timothy 4 for a moment. Paul gives some advice to a young pastor named Timothy. And his advice to Timothy a long time ago applies very directly to us still. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8 Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 12 and 13. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Verse 15 and 16, he says, practice these things. Did you hear that? He didn't just say hear it, observe it, agree with it. Practice these things. Then he says, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, he says. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Paul here, in his advice to young Timothy, he he uses the word save there in verse 16. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, he uses the word purify, and both of those words are used to denote continued action, practice. He says immerse, he says persist in these things. In what? In obedience to the truth of the gospel. The King James Version has a little phrase here that I appreciate. It says, obeying the truth through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. You find that in the King James Version? I don't think that phrase should be left out simply because it's only through the Spirit that any of us can be obedient to the truth, right? R.C. Sproul says, the purification of the soul comes through obeying the truth of the Word of God through the Spirit of God. There are no substitutes or shortcuts. So obedience to the truth produces the purification of our souls. And this happens to Christians on an individual level. We are being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. But notice that it does something on the corporate level too. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. As we rely on the Spirit of God to lead us into obedience to the truth and to the purification of our souls. He's also producing in each Christian, a genuine love for the church. This is an extraordinary kind of love though. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39, Jesus gives the great commandments, not the great commission. This is the great commandment where he says, love God with everything that's in you and then go and love your neighbor as yourself. What makes this love that Peter is describing extraordinary is that without the Spirit of God in us, we cannot ever hope to love others the way that we're supposed to. Jesus proved this through the parable of the Good Samaritan that he told. He said, everyone is your neighbor. Every person that you meet is your neighbor. You're to treat them with kindness, compassion, and care, just like that Good Samaritan did. I would even say it this way. It has very little to do with your feelings of affection and warmth toward that person, your neighbor. You are called to love them. Remember, the man that was left for dead was a Jew. And who passed him by before the Samaritan arrived? Other Jews. People, his brothers, people like him. This was a a scandalous thing for Jesus to say to to his Jewish audience. He said, you don't love people the way that you think you do. Your neighbor is not who you think it is. It's not only who you think it is. It's so much broader. And it was this, in the Jews' eyes, it was a wicked Samaritan who was the hero of this story. He was a better neighbor than the Jews were. And Jesus reminded his disciples in John thirteen thirty five. he said that the world would know that they are his. How? By their love for one another. By how they love the brethren. So we're called to love our neighbor regardless of if we feel like it. But when it comes to the brotherhood, when it comes to the church, Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So I would contend that the purity of our souls that Peter's already mentioned is connected with our loving one another with a pure heart. See, for me to love you earnestly, my heart must be being made pure through the Spirit. My heart is being made pure by the Spirit as I am practicing obedience to the truth. And so my obedience to the truth affects the way that I love. My ability, in fact, to love you earnestly is tied to my obedience to the truth. Let me say that one more time. My ability to love you earnestly is tied to my obedience to the truth. Sometimes we fall into the lie that it doesn't matter what I do on my own time behind closed doors, it doesn't affect anybody else. That's a lie. It's not true. You can think of multiple examples from Scripture where people thought they were covering their sin, and it was affecting everyone. My ability to love earnestly is tied to my obedience to the truth. How can I love you earnestly if I'm constantly trying to find your faults? Do I really love you earnestly if I only think about you for an hour or two on a Sunday morning? Can I really love brothers and sisters in my church family if I'm walking in disobedience to the truth? Peter says that our love for one another will be earnest from a pure heart. In an example of love in the body, I want to just read quickly part of a thank you note from the Brown family. By God's grace... Loving one another earnestly is being practiced here. The Brown family says, We are overwhelmed by the incredible kindness we've received from our dear friends at Ramsey Creek. Thank you. It feels silly to act like a simple thank you is enough to express how much we have appreciated the many ways you have shown us love and care. Every time we read a text, taken a call, opened a note, welcomed visitors, received a gift, had offers of help with children, home, or animal care, each time has been a delight and has brought us the much-needed encouragement. We are so very grateful. God has been and is very good to us. Our Ramsey family has been a huge source of strength while we've had our whole life turned upside down. Two things keep ringing over and over in our hearts. One, one, that in our weakness, God's power is perfected. And two, there are many blessings in life that we overlook until we are reminded by our trials to see and be grateful for them. We have so much to be thankful for, and the Ramsey Creek Fellowship is definitely one for which we praise God. Love one another earnestly. Just as a way of reminder in that context, you can't control how other people do that. I can't control your actions. You can't control my actions. But you know what we can do as individuals? We can strive more and more, harder and harder, to practice obedience to the truth, which then in turn leads to more fervent love for the body, to God's people. But again, this kind of love isn't natural, which Peter reminds us, I think, by continuing in verse 23. You can read that with me. Since you have been born again, this is how we love one another earnestly. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the reason we have the capacity for this kind of love in the body of Christ is because God has fundamentally changed us. He's fundamentally changed our hearts. Peter uses this phrase, born again, and it's the second time he's used it so far in the first 23 verses. Look back at verse 3. That's when he's used it before. Both times he's used it, he refers to it as an external work of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So God has caused his people to be born again through an external means by which they did not control. It's all of him. Verse 3, according to his great mercy. Verse 23, through his love and through his living and abiding word. Again, R.C. Sproul, I'll quote from him. He says, he has caused us to be born anew so that what is not natural can be accomplished by the supernatural work that God performs upon our hearts. Obedience to the truth. Earnest love for the brethren. These are supernatural works that God does through his spirit in his people. When Peter uses the phrase born again. He's using it here especially along the idea of conception. That's why he uses the term seed. And he talks about there's one that perishes. Talking about all of ours. Eventually we die. We are no more but there is one that is imperishable. And if you look up that word in the Greek, it has a couple other synonyms that go along with it. Incorruptible, undecaying, immortal. Do those words sound familiar? Look back at verse 4. I don't think this is a coincidence. Imperishable seed. Some of those synonyms were incorruptible, undecaying, immortal. This is the same way, the same words that Peter uses to talk about the inheritance of the believer. Imperishable, immortal, undecaying. The truth is, whatever is born of the flesh has been corrupted by sin. So the process that a sinner undergoes in being born again must be initiated and applied by the Spirit of God himself. John chapter 1 It's one of my favorite chapters in scripture verses 12 and 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but they were born of God. Peter says that all of this kind of birth, rebirth occurs through the living and abiding Word of God. The word through there, through the living and abiding Word, through can also be translated by means of. So, by means, we have been born again by means of the living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God is forever alive. It's alive pulses with life. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12, describes it as being living and active. You know that verse. Sharper than ever, any two-edged sword. It lays us bare. It opens us up to the sight of God in a different way. It's alive. And then Peter uses a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, to affirm this truth. And before I read that to you, just remember, or let me Explain to you that in Isaiah 40 especially, God was giving Isaiah these words as a means of comfort to his people. This was to comfort the nation of Israel. A voice says, cry. And I said, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The seed and lineage and lifespan of mankind may appear bright, colorful, and beautiful for a time, kind of like a flower in the field, but because it's been corrupted, it is perishable and it dies just like the grass and you don't have to be a farmer to even understand this. We understand flowers die. You can cut a flower and it might last for a week or two. Some of them last even a little bit longer. But eventually that flower, when it's been cut, it dies. Even the flowers in the field, especially in our growing zone, they die during this time of year. But the word of the Lord, in contrast, stands forever. It never dies. It always is alive. It remains. Christian, God is using this as a means to bless you, to comfort you. I hope it's working. I hope that as we live in a day and age where foundations are shifting, it seems, under our very feet, that we stand firmly on the foundation of his word. People have been doing it for thousands of years. We are not the first. That's a comfort to us as well. We can stand on his word, on the foundation. Look at verse 25. This is the foundation, this is the good news that was preached to you, Peter says. The good news, the gospel. Paul talks about this gospel in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. He says it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So even if you're listening this morning and you've not believed, please understand that the gospel is the best news that you will ever hear. This truth that God became man dwelled in the flesh lived among us, lived the perfect life, died a death that we deserve in our place and was raised again on the third day is the best news you will ever hear because that has made the way possible for you to be saved, for your heart to be renewed, for you to be, as Peter says, born again. And it is because you hear this enduring, faithful, forever word that is alive because it abides forever. In his word, you find everything you need for life godliness it's the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes paul said so the question is do you believe is that true of you remember the grass withers and the flower falls life is fleeting you may be in great health you may not have a care in the world maybe your bank account is full and you have no worries that may only last for a short time life is fleeting and so much of what we live for in our world today is just really futile Meaningless in the end, but belief in God through Jesus Christ, that swings the door open to eternal life. Two thousand years after Peter wrote this, two thousand-ish years after Peter wrote this, we as God's people are still assembling week after week to read and study and celebrate this enduring word. It endures through all criticism, through all hostility, it is the firm foundation that Peter is referring to. I want to leave you with a poem this morning. It's it's in your notes. I can't figure out who originally wrote this concept. I saw it attributed to Charles Spurgeon, Richard Wormbrand, even who we all, who's also mentioned uh, a man named John Clifford, and even uh, D. James Kennedy. I saw this attributed to. But what I'll what I'll read to you is kind of a, a retelling in a more modern concept by a guy named John Jansen in 2020. It's, it's a poem called God's Anvil. Kids, this is that picture that you saw earlier. This is God's anvil. Listen, listen closely. I passed upon a blacksmith's shop and heard the anvil sing. The chime, each time the hammer struck, a melody would ring. There strewn upon the blackened floor around the anvil's base, the broken shards of hammer parts the blacksmith had replaced. And just how many anvils, sir, have you now worn through? I'd guess by all the hammer bits, it must be quite a few. I'll let you in, he said with a grin, to my secret free of doubt. This anvil, still original, wears every hammer out. With every blow the blacksmiths throw, the hammer crashing down, sends cracks and quakes till hammer breaks, no flaws on anvil found. Just so the skeptics hammer down upon the word of God, the anvil takes while hammer breaks their efforts all for naught. Relentless doubters carry on attempting one by one to mar the anvil of God's word. In turn, each one's undone. Richard Warmbrand does say something very similar to this in his book, The Answer to the Atheist Handbook. He says this, Hammer away, ye hostile bands. Your hammers break, God's anvil stands. Peter said it this way, The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. That's what we plant our life on. That's what we plant our feet on is the enduring word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are benefactors. We are inheritors of the greatest inheritance that we could ever receive. And it is, it comes to to fruition the day we breathe our last in this mortal body and join you. But Lord, even now, our inheritance involves your enduring word. This word that through hundreds of years and millennia, Lord, skeptics have tried to take it down to prove it wrong, and Lord, it endures. And it's not because, you know, we just think that it should, Lord, it's it's because it's your inspired word. Every word of it, every breath came from you that inspired it and gave it. And so, Lord, we don't seek to change it in any way. Lord, there may be many who would in our day and age, but here at our church, Lord, we choose to read and obey your word as it stands. And so I pray that you would give us a clear understanding of it so that as we go and we live this life as you've called us to, that we would do it in a way that honors you, that's faithful to your word because it is alive and it teaches us. And it corrects us and instructs us for righteousness. And, Lord, I pray that we would be made more and more righteous as a result of embracing and loving and obeying the truth of your word, especially in this day and age. Lord, we thank you for it. Lord, I pray that if there are any today who don't feel that way about your word, Lord, I pray that you might lift that veil, that they might see its glory. It shows us Christ in whom we can be saved. By Your grace, in Your name we pray. Amen.